Hi everyone, and welcome to SEDScast. I'm your host, Owen Marr, and our guest today is Charles Miller. Charles is the president and CEO of Link Global. Link is a space startup focused on developing satellites that can communicate directly with your cell phone. Back in February, Charles and his team completed a world first. They sent a text message from a satellite directly to an unmodified smartphone. Prior to Link, Charles founded or co-founded a number of space companies, including NanoRacks, ProSpace, and Constellation Services International. Charles also served as a senior consultant for NASA's Commercial Space Division for three years. I'm incredibly excited to discuss Charles' previous ventures and what he's working on now at Link. If you want to go straight to the Link portion of our conversation, you can jump to the 17-minute mark. I have to say, this was one of the most interesting episodes I've recorded thus far, so I hope you enjoy it as well. Welcome to SEDScast, episode 21, with Charles Miller. SEDScast. It's your host, Owen Marr. Joining me today on the show is Charles Miller, who is the CEO of Link. Charles, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Owen. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you. You're one of the people I was personally interested in and also thought would be good for the podcast because you're doing some really interesting stuff. You've had an exciting year. You've set a kind of a cool record earlier this year, or I don't know if you want to call it a record, but can you explain what happened back in February? It was a, you could call it a world first. We yeah, sent the world's first text message from a satellite in low earth orbit to a standard ordinary mobile phone. And it's a world first because there's many satellite phones, but uh, there's 5 billion ordinary mobile phones in the world. And we were the first one to be able to connect the satellite to a standard mobile phone. I saw that that came across my feed or something. And I was like, wow, I've, I've got to read more into this because that sounds like one of those things that could really change how we use phones. And I mean, having unlimited cell service essentially would be an incredible feat. So obviously very uh, attention grabbing. Well, a few years ago, um, people told us it was impossible, right? And so we've, we've made the impossible possible. And I assume later in the show, we'll get into that. Yeah, I definitely want to talk some details on that. Uh, can you give us just some context as to who you are and why you founded Link in the first place? Well, I'm a serial space entrepreneur, and and uh, to get into who I am, I've I've made it my mission when it, since I was about your age, maybe even younger, to open the space frontier to humanity and expand human civilization and life itself into the into the space frontier, and uh, um, and I've been doing space entrepreneurial ventures for decades. I assume, assume you want to get into a little bit of that. And uh, my last startup was a company called Nanoracks, which is doing very well, commercializing the International Space Station. And a, and a few years ago, I decided that, uh, I should not say a few years ago, more than 15 years ago, I decided nanosats or CubeSats, as you, as you call them in universities, were going to be revolutionary. And I just set out to find the killer app. And so that was Link. Um, but uh, it's really about getting humanity and life into space. Awesome. So yeah, I want to talk a bunch about NanoRacks, a bunch about Link. Before we get into that, let's back up and talk about your early years. Uh, so let's start with college. What were you, were you interested in space when you were going into college? What did you want to do when you were, you know, you said you were about my age? Well, absolutely. I, I, I 
I went to college to be be an astronaut. I, when I was a, a young kid in in grade school, I decided uh, I loved space and I wanted to go to space. And I chose my college, decided to be an astronaut. I ended up going to Caltech instead of the Air Force Academy because I decided to, to take the strategy to be a mission specialist on the shuttle. And uh, so I went to college with that in mind. And while I was at college, um, I ran into the ideas of Gerard O'Neill um, and who talks about a realistic way to do large-scale economic development of space and, and space settlement. And so he was a Princeton physicist and making real that you could actually, the physics supported building, you know, um, large scale, you know, and settlements in space that a lot of things had been relegated to science fiction. So that just inspired me. And I got involved in, in college. I uh, actually started my first chapter at Caltech of the L5 Society, which was um, inspired by Gerard O'Neill. L5 later merged into the National Space Society, became core of that. And since you're SEDS, at the time, SEDS was mostly an East Coast thing. I did I knew about Todd Hawley and Peter Diamandis, but I didn't, you know, that we, the big thing in California, where I was, is was more the L5 Society. So I started a chapter of L5 to help make that vision a reality. And so uh, that's how I got involved, really active in space. And you said earlier, serial space entrepreneurs. So you've been involved with a lot of different companies, had some very successful startups. What was the, the first time you decided you wanted to start your own company? Well, in the I, I got involved in a grassroots space activism through the L5 Society that became the National Space Society. My first job out of college was the administrator of the National Space Society right after L5 merged with the National Space Institute. And um, then, in, but I decided that... Uh, being a commercial space entrepreneur wasn't ready yet. The conditions weren't there. And so I got involved in trying to pass laws and change federal policies to, to make it easier and, and a higher chance of success to be a commercial space venture. And so I started a, an organization in the 1990s called ProSpace, which we called the Citizen Space Lobby, but it was to advance legislation and policies to accelerate the commercial development of space and to encourage cheap access to space. And so one of the key things ProSpace did in the 1990s as I was the founder of the organization is we lobbied U.S. Congress. Private citizens have the right to go to Congress and, and tell them what we think they should do. And uh, one of the things we got passed was the Commercial Space Act of 1998 that uh, set in law the requirement that NASA should buy commercial space station cargo delivery after shuttle was retired. So this um, got passed in the law. NASA didn't think shuttle would ever retire in the 90s. And uh, later, uh, after Columbia happened, um, NASA would have, NASA's preference would have to be another government-owned and operated shuttle or vehicle. But now the law was written that you, they had to buy commercial cargo delivery services. So this actually created the basis for SpaceX. We, we created the, the policy and law in the 90s that resulted in the creation of SpaceX. So, uh, um, you know, ProSpace and all the people involved with it, um, many of them who were students your, your age on Capitol Hill helped uh, create the space revolution back in the 1990s. Wow. 
that's amazing to hear about. Did you think that like when you were back in the early 2000s, when you were trying to get this stuff passed, did you ever think that like SpaceX, a company like SpaceX would actually exist and be sending astronauts by now? Well, that's exactly why we were doing it. We didn't know who or which entrepreneur or which commercial space company, but there was a lot of commercial space entrepreneurs back in the 80s and 90s who were trying, and we just saw that the deck was stacked against them, right? The, the government, you know, the government, NASA, never wanted to do anything with these startup space companies. They, they would never help. And so we said the only way that was ever going to happen, in fact, NASA there is a law passed in 1988 called the Launch Service Purchase Act, um, required the U.S. government and NASA to buy commercial launch services, even for just traditional expendable launch vehicles for launching just science satellites. NASA wanted to build all the launch vehicles. They wanted to be in control of building the trains, planes, and automobiles, right? They just wanted to do it all. And so we had to break up that kind of government monopoly and get back to more American free enterprise systems where you have a partnership between government and industry. And so that was a lot of hard work starting in the Launch Service Purchase Act. And we just we just knew we didn't know who was going to do it. But we knew if we change the rules to get back to more traditional, you know, with a free market element of space development, you know, it wasn't all free market. It was there was a government aspect and a, and a free market aspect that this was critical to enabling American success in space, right? And human success in space. And so we didn't, you know, we didn't know it was going to be Elon. In fact, one of the, the great stories here is everybody knows Elon is this amazing rocket entrepreneur, right? So my first meeting with Elon, I sat down with them and I told him, you should start a rocket company. He told me, you're crazy. I'm not, I have no interest in starting a rocket company. So um, that, that's, how, that's how old I am, Owen. So. <laughs> Yeah, it's been great to see what he does, but that's that's really interesting that you were prepared to make these changes and, and uh, you know lobbying Congress, not knowing who would step up, but knowing that someone would eventually come around that yeah. could get the job done. I just had faith in the free enterprise system, right? That free enterprise works, right? If you now it fails at certain things, so you just have to be a student of history. And and public-private partnerships that we were advocating back in the '90s, people thought we were nuts, right? We were the we were the crazy people, and uh, only it's only now you look back and say, "Wow, that that worked really well." Yeah, definitely. So, what did you jump into after ProSpace? Well, in in the late '90s, uh, ProSpace was uh, succeeding, and it was my kind of my first space startup. In 1998, I started a company with a couple of my friends and colleagues called Constellation Services International, and we'd figured out a way to do satellite servicing, you know, repairing satellites in low Earth orbit uh, using Russian technology. We were going to leverage some Russian technology in the late 90s. Russia was we were friendly with Russia. There was a guy named Boris Yeltsin as president. He was a clear Democrat, and so we partnered with the Russians, and uh, that was. Um, we were just we just raised our first money to go do that to service like the big Leo constellations like Teledesic and Skybridge and Global Star, and then uh, we went through the telecom collapse and they all went bankrupt, and so we changed their business plan, Constellation Services International, to focus on space station cargo delivery. So we invented we did what is called classically called a pivot 
in the startup industry, we changed their business plan and we focused then on cargo delivery to the space station around 2001. And uh, we used, again, Russian technology, a very innovative way of using uh, the Progress spacecraft that's already at the space station as a reusable tug. And we invented reusable tugs and standardized containers in space for cargo delivery. And, uh, um, and, and uh, it was only a few years later, four or five years later, that a guy named Putin became president of Russia. And it became politically incorrect to do anything with Russia. So we had kind of, you know, although we had this amazing technology and solution that was much better than others and lower risk. It was uh, we had a we were in a dead end because of policy and political reasons. So um, that was the start of CSI. Gotcha. And then did that sort of notion eventually feed back into NanoRacks, or when did that idea start to brew? Well, it did. So when when we were in the middle of uh, competing against SpaceX and a bunch of other U.S. companies for space station cargo delivery in the 2003, four, five timeframe. We came up with this idea that eventually led to NanoRacks, but we were looking at watching all these CubeSats coming out of universities led by Stanford and Cal Poly. And it was very clear to us that this was going to, that CubeSats were going to be good enough someday to solve real problems in space and make a business. And uh, nobody had identified that. At the same time, we were becoming you know, leading world experts in what you could do with space stations. We were constantly look, thinking about what you could do with space stations. And then we realized that uh, and my co-founder of Nanorex, David Anderman and I, um, that you could marry the two together. You could put CubeSats at the space stations. And so as David's original idea, I put together the business case and how you do it. And we got a couple of NASA centers to be partners. And we, uh, Nanorack started as a project inside Constellation Services International. And, uh, then later, so as you grow up, I, I, uh, I had a, had a wife and now I had a, a kid, uh, a kid on the way. Um, actually a second child in the way. And my wife told, you know, it's time to get a steady paycheck. So you're, if you're an entrepreneur, it's, uh, it's one thing to, if, uh, when you're young to go out and start a company and, but if, when you start having kids and family and mortgage, you know, so I need to get a steady paycheck. I, I, I spun NanoRacks out of CSI and uh, recruited a couple people. Um, first, Mike Johnson is the co-founding CTO of NanoRacks. And I brought in Jeff Mamber to replace me as the CEO of NanoRacks. And uh, so the company's done very well since then. So, um, but uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's where NanoRacks was figuring out how do you marry CubeSats to the space station. Mm-hmm. And then what was the steady job you ended up taking? I, I went to work at NASA headquarters as senior advisor for commercial space. The actual deputy administrator of NASA, uh, Shanna Dale, said, come, come there to work. And, uh, and then my first boss, it was, it was actually by the time I got to NASA, Shanna was already gone. And my first boss out of college, uh, Lori Garver, became deputy administrator. So it was a... Uh, um, you know, space is a very bipartisan place, and uh, Shanna and Lori are both very pro-commercial space people, and uh, it was a very funny uh, transition. But I worked three years at NASA headquarters, basically trying to jumpstart new activities for commercial space partnerships, and and I could see ideas of 
you know, I had like eight different teams across the net agency working, support, reporting to me at headquarters on new ideas to do commercial space partnerships. Many of those ideas still haven't been done, haven't been done, and some of them still need to be done, right? So, for example, we could solve the orbital debris problem in space, right? Uh, you know, the team I put together over 10 years ago at NASA headquarters knows how to solve the orbital debris problem. We just, uh, there needs to be a will. There is a solution. There just needs to be a will on how to solve it. Did you notice, so you started when you were younger lobbying Congress to make changes. Did you, once you got to NASA, did you recognize why it took so long to make changes? Did you feel bogged down or was NASA at that point a little fast moving? Oh, uh, by the time I got to NASA, uh, all that previous couple decades experience is the only thing that prepared me for being at NASA. And if you if you go to NASA and think that uh, with an idealistic view of how to and, and what you need to understand is NASA's got a bunch of different competing interests and people that are economic interests. And if you just think everybody is this an idealistic, you know, do whatever's best for the nation, you're you're gonna be handed your hat when you go to work for NASA. There's there's a whole bunch of different interests and, and you know self interests that, that are at play. And people are going to resist and fight you just because, you know, uh, it's their program, their project, and there's a bunch of jobs depending on it and where they live and work, right? And and but there's a lot of great people at NASA who want to do the right thing, so it's kind of um, a political warfare inside NASA, even when you get there, right? Uh, about uh, various ways of doing space. Okay, so NASA would have been mid 2010s, and then when did the idea for Link start to? surface for you well while i was so let me go back a little bit so when i was looking at cubesats around 2005 2006 it was clear to me there was a bunch of technologies that didn't exist that didn't allow cubesats to solve real problems as their own satellites but it was also very clear if you study innovation theory and like you know theorists like clayton christensen that pretty soon they'll be good enough to solve real problems so um, when I was at NASA, it, you know, a company called Planet, started by some people who were also at, at NASA um, and who were colleagues, um, they first Cosmogia started in their garage, became Planet Labs and then Planet, um, started solving real problems for Earth remote sensing. And it was clear to me around 2010, 2011, that the time was now that, that CubeSats were, had grown up. They're now NanoSats doing, solving real problems. And and so I did my three-year tour at NASA and then got out. And I said, what I looked at, I said, there's thousands of space engineers looking at cool technologies for, for nanosats, but nobody was figuring out what problem you're solving and how do you make money? What's the business model? What's the business case? So, you know, just because you have a great technology doesn't know you know how to make money. And so I decided to put together a team when I left in 2012, and this is what I did, to find the killer app for nanosatellites. And the key model I had in mind for nanosatellites was a repeat of history of personal computers. And if you go back, and if, you know, I, I lived it, some of you just have to, the, the SEDS members have to read about it, um, is in the, and when I was in high school in the 70s, the Apple IIs and personal computers were erupting on the scene, and everybody's excited by them. So in 1977, the Apple II came out, and they were being built tens of thousands a month. But I can re just distinctly remember 
everybody going all out as a kid and you know there's lots of games you could play in computers you knew that you know you just knew it was a revolutionary it's a big deal but i can distinctly remember people saying well why do you need a computer on your desk and well what are you going to do with it you need to put mom's recipes on it what good is a personal computer on your desk for there was there was a lot of skepticism and the reason is that it's not obvious now is many of the killer apps that you now take for granted hadn't been invented yet. So the first spreadsheet ever in history was invented in 1979 called VisiCalc for the Apple II. The first word processor, you know, I learned how to do it on mechanical typewriters, right? But the first word processor on computers was 1980. And then 83, 84, there's a bunch of, you know, innovation. You had the uh, desktop publishing and laser printing by the Apple for the Mac came out. And then you had uh, graphical user interfaces taking off. And the first email program ever in history was MCI Mail in 84. Well, these came years after the personal computers were, were being built, mass produced. And so I was saying the same thing I just had a matter of faith. The same thing was going to happen in nanosats, that there was a ton of people building satellites, but figuring out the killer app was was what needed to be done. And I was, I said, uh, we're going to find the killer app. So I, we looked at a ton of things. So there's a ton of companies out doing Internet of Things things. I looked at so many Internet of Things ideas for two years. I just couldn't convince myself any of them was a killer app. And it was about five years ago that one of the team members came to us and who was doing data analytics in Africa for the Ebola crisis. And they had used geosynchronous satellites and, and big these big terminals you put in your backpack called Beagin terminals for Inmarsat. And she was doing the data analytics for nonprofits and how they were being used, rather they were throwing away the donors' money, right? And so the if you think about it, eight, they're very expensive user terminals. They don't scale well. You can't give them to everybody. People, but they would backpack these user terminals into remote jungles in Africa where they were doing Ebola crisis aid, and they had to have connectivity, and, and they just wanted to see how they were being used. And what she noticed, and this is my co-founder, Margo, what she noticed was that, that most of the use of these user terminals wasn't for you know, web apps and very advanced uses. What's the, the, the most used thing was doing messaging over their phone. It was just a glorified hotspot in the middle of the jungle. And so they were just doing messaging on the phone and saying, oh, I need so many blankets and this is what I saw today and do messaging back and forth with colleagues that were trying to deal with the crisis. And so she, the light, she had a light bulb turn on. She came to me and she said, um, is there any way you can connect a satellite directly to a phone? And all you need to do is messaging. It's just even that would be a, a breakthrough. And so I turned around to uh, the other members of the team, and the person who was the most important was Ty Spidell. And, and he was about your age, Owen. So he was actually out of Cornell. He had been recommended by Professor Mason Peck to me to join the team. And uh, who's a professor at Cornell, former NASA CTO colleague of mine. And uh, Ty said, looked at me and when I asked that question, he said, no way, you can't connect a satellite to a phone. And so usually in innovation, that's where it stops, right? But I asked the next question, well, why not? And he kind of grumbled 
and said, okay. And so he went away and he did the link budget. So he's going to show me why not, right? And he came back the next week. And and we'd been looking at lowering satellites much lower in LEO. So he came back and he says, if you lower the satellite to lower LEO, you know, let me say 500 kilometers, and you narrow the slant range of the, uh, so you don't have this big, huge, wild field of view like an Iridium or many other satellites, but you use a high-gain antenna and, lower, and, and at the same time narrow the slant range, and you use sub-1 gigahertz spectrum, UHF spectrum, which gives you much, you know, better link margin. If you do all those, you can close the link budget. And it's not just down, it's two ways. So the existing phone, in, in a GSM phone, it's one to two watts power. In an LTE, it's 200 milliwatts. And you use the pro, you know, you can close the link. And so I thought about that a little bit, not too long, it, but I had to convince myself this, this is a, a big idea and there was, you can make money doing this. So I had to think about it a little bit, um, but it was very clear after thinking about it enough, that uh, that messaging, if it, all we did was messaging, that's the easiest to do. We could, it's a huge business. I said, this is this is the killer app I've been looking for. It's a, it's not, a, I was looking for a minimum multi-billion, a billion dollar business. This this opened up, this is many tens of billions, if not a hundred billion dollar business. The phone, mobile phone is a trillion dollar industry. And what we figured out is this is a $400 billion total addressable market. So we, we just went on a, on a voyage of discovery to find the killer app. And, and you never know it's going to be there, but we found one. So. That's funny because uh, that's the first thing I thought was, all right, let's try and do the link budgets and figure out how they're doing this. And so me and my friend Amit, who's a recent graduate, we sat down, we went through a bunch of different cases. And we were looking at it. So are you looking at doing like an SMS text, which is like 1100 bits ish? Yeah, well, that'll set we start with. But over time, we figured out how you can do broadband from space, right? Yeah, th this will grow into be broadband everywhere on your phone. You know, you can be in the most remote area and get tens of megabits per second. But we'll start with SMS and lower data rates. And we'll rapidly grow up the technology uh, adoption curve. Um, to do the even much higher performance. But yes, that's what we'll start with. SMS, you know, exactly what you're saying. And that's the easiest, lowest hanging fruit. So you said 400 billion for total addressable market, which can you explain it to them? That's the entire, that's the size of the entire space industry, global space industry, right? Our market is, would double the size of the space industry. That's how big it is. Mm -hmm. And it's divided into two main segments, right? It's people that already have phones but don't have coverage and then it's the other like two billion people that can't have phones right. because of lack of coverage right so there's yeah that's how we segment it and we think that's useful to think of it that way so there's people so starting with the people who already have phones you know everybody's probably experienced this some more than others if you if you live in a city and you never leave the city maybe you've never experienced disconnectivity but most people you know, visiting family or friends or driving an hour outside of the city, you'll find places where your phone has no connectivity even today. And so it's worse in other countries, um, except if, you know, Japan and South Korea are very well connected. But in most other countries, it's worse than the United States. But our data is that you're about connected. The average global mobile phone user is connected about 85% of the time, which considering the industry's only been around a few decades, 
It's pretty amazing. And the but the issue is is that the mobile networks are not really growing. There's no incentive, no economic incentive for them to grow. Like here in the United States, we all have fixed price plans. You, if you're Verizon, you don't get any more money um, if you add a cell tower in a remote or rural region, you know, because we're all fixed price anyway, right? You only get more money if you sign up new subscribers. And so United States has like got 95% penetration rate on mobile network on coverage on, on subscribers for U.S. adults. Right. So there's only this last 5%. And those 5% mostly are not going to buy a phone anyway. So that you're not going to get much money for adding better coverage in the United States if you're Verizon or AT&T or T-Mobile. Just there's no it's no economic incentive. And so uh, but that doesn't mean that people wouldn't use it. There's a lot of problems caused by the lack of coverage. People die because they get in a remote area and they get hurt or they break down and, and they can't call somebody. Right. They can't call 911 and they can't, uh, you know, just so that happens all the time. You know, the fires in California take out the network. You can't even tell people to, when they turn off the power to, that the fire's coming, get out of the way, um, get out of your home, right? So there's lots of problems with disconnectivity um, to that. So we solved that fundamental economic problem. Um, if you build up the data of the 5 billion users, um, it looks like about 150 billion of the 400 billion for extra revenue for uh, extending coverage everywhere for existing users and th those are the those are the easiest low hanging fruit they already have a phone they already have a plan you just you just sign up their MNOs as a partner and now they have coverage everywhere right and when they roam onto our part of the network they get an extra charge that's the way that works today if you roam on someone else's network you go overseas you you know, I'm a Verizon user. It, it's 10 bucks a day, right? Same thing, AT&T, T-Mobile charge you an extra roaming charge, right? It shows up on your bill at the end of the month. So we'll do the same. And so there's some revenue there. Um, the other part of this is I think you're going into is all the, there's two and a half billion people. There's about 5.2 billion people with phones, about 7.7 .7 billion people in the world. There's, so there's two and a half billion people without mobile phones. A little close to a billion of those are kids, right? They're, you take them off under 16, right? Or under a certain age where you're not supposed to get a phone, right? And the United States is getting younger and younger. Uh, you get in, you get in junior high, you're, most kids have a phone, right? So, um, so, but let's take a billion off for, for kids that, that don't have a phone. So that leaves a billion and a half. Um, we think about a billion of them would buy a phone, the data suggests. If they had affordable connectivity where they live and work today, there is a there's a couple billion people in the world that live or are tied to the land in rural remote communities, mostly because they make their living or they're serving people who make their living on in farming communities. There's about a billion small farms in the world and you can't bring the farm to the city. And because of the economics, you can't bring the cell tower to the farm outside of the city. It just make doesn't pay. So there's a natural disconnect there. And so we can, you know, and the issue here is if a lot of the people out on the farm, less so in the United States, but in emerging countries, they, they, it makes no sense for them, the whole everybody on the farm to get a phone. They might have one person on the farm to get a phone. If you're, for example, if you're in Africa, they actually, they have to travel an entire day walking to get to where they're connected. 
And, uh, you know, they might have one person in the entire farming family get a phone and they take the phone into the city in the weekend to get connection. And so they send and receive messages. But it has much less functionality where the farm is, right? It's like, uh, so why would you get everybody a phone? You're just throwing away money. And that, and another thing that people don't realize that uh, just is incorrect is it's not the cost of the phone. You know, the people in Africa don't buy a thirty, forty, fifty dollars, you know, smartphone. They don't even the cheap smartphones. They they go and buy a feature phone. In fact, they can go buy a, a refurbished feature phone in most African cities for two bucks. So they'll the average if the average income is five bucks a day, you can afford a two dollar feature phone if the rest of this makes sense. So if you don't have affordable connectivity on the farm, why would you get throw away $2 on a feature phone, right? A, a refurbished feature phone. They don't. But if you had affordable connectivity on the farm, um, and it's it it transforms the farm's economics to have, you know, to have everybody have phones. You have it's a safety issue for everybody on the farm, right? If they have a problem. Um, it's communicating best practices on the farm. In fact, in Africa, mobile money is a huge deal. Um, and if you have a, a, a feature phone, you have mobile money on it, it changes the economics of the farm. So there's a whole bunch of benefits to mobile connectivity. It's just, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to buy a subscription, you know, uh, for a phone that, uh, has no connectivity. So we think, uh, there's a, a you know a growth of another, a billion people who would sign up, and the economics suggests that this is about 250 billion dollar growth just in itself. Now this will take longer than signing up people who already have phones, but it's still a huge growth opportunity. You know, so connect the the fortunate thing here we're 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 motivated not just by the money but making a difference in the world. Connecting people transforms lives, and then sometimes it saves lives, right? So. We we are our our team is so jazzed and excited by what we're doing. We're you know they leap out of bed right because because they're we're, what we're doing is so cool. Yeah, I mean, if you're talking about a billion people connecting, another fifteen plus or minus percent of the world would be incredible. Is the issue with satellite phones the the cost basically like how expensive a sat phone is to acquire? Well, yeah, you can go out and look at the sat phone. Um, there's there's several different on the market. They all cost six, seven, or eight hundred dollars. But it's not just the cost of the phone. It's they they sign you up to a, a monthly billing plan that's thirty, forty, fifty dollars a month. Mm-hmm. Right? It's not. It's just the hardware is part of the cost, but it's it's selling up to the service plan too. And then just think about it, even if you can afford that, even rich people don't carry those phones around in their pocket. It's not just, it's the friction. You got to make sure it's powered and you have your regular mobile phone in your pocket and you have to have the other phone in your pocket and your pockets are full and you can't forget it. You got to bring it with you and only use it when the first one doesn't work. It's just so much customer friction. Like it's like nobody wants to deal with that. So, um, you know, it's just, you know, so it, the, the statistics show that about slightly one one hundredth of one percent of all mobile phones in the world are satellite phones. And and the only thing you can take is like nobody wants to be disconnected. But the friction and, you know, the friction as well as the cost is is uh, just a pain. Right. So in the future and it's not too far in the distant future that, you know, your phone that's in your pocket today will stay connected everywhere. Right. And and. And pretty soon your kids, Owen, will say, 
they were thought thought it, this, this is the way it was always, right? So it, it, I, I actually think what we're doing is inevitable now. Now that we've proven the fundamental technology and the market is so large, it'll be pulled into existence, what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think with how large the market is, it's very appealing and it's obviously something that would benefit humanity. So I totally agree with you. Now that you've proven some of this core technology, what is your plan for being one of the hopefully one of the main players within this this market basically well we're going to go faster than everybody else right we got a multi-year lead we we own the ip we own the technology um we're doing uh, rapid do learn loops on uh testing and flight testing technology in space where we have four satellites in, in orbit our four satellite is in orbit right now and we're working on uh, the next generation of satellites so we're just going to go faster and we're going to innovate and and uh, for space system engineers like yourself, we're we're gonna we're we're building hardware and launching it every six months, right? You, the people at Link, the engineers at Link, get their hands really dirty on on space hardware. So it's a uh, it's we're kind of in a uh, in a space engineer's dream shop, right? Where you you get to build and in, invent new spacecraft technology every day of the week. Awesome, yeah. I love that stage at the startup where you're like going from the idea into like, let's start building, let's start doing. When we've been talking a lot about CubeSats or NanoSats, depending on the, the context, is that what you're going after when you're talking about this low LEO where you're at like 500 kilometers? Well, our, our baseline satellites are uh, for the first generation are about 25 kilograms. Okay. And, and so there's, they're an order of magnitude smaller than the SpaceX Starlinks. But over time, you know, we'll be building bigger satellites. Uh, um, but uh, that's where we're starting, right? We're, and it allows us to innovate much faster by uh, starting small and rapidly iterating the technology. One question I had is cell phones, especially as we're going more towards 5G, are getting to like much higher frequencies. Are you going to be able to communicate with something that has a 5G antenna, which is really optimized for like short distance communications well if you know this goes to the fundamental link budget if uh, both at higher frequencies you can have much higher path loss and and you have a um, you know atmospheric absorption at the higher frequencies right so um, for the uplink from the phone to the satellite we just think that's crazy but there are there's some cool use cases where you you use higher frequencies in combination with lower frequencies yeah, but uh, it, it, that's why one of, the, one of the reasons to use lower frequencies is because uh, connectivity from the existing phone makes it's much easier, and that makes total sense. They're part of the link budget. Are you worried about phone manufacturers deciding to try this on their own? Like, what if Apple decides they want to build a specialized antenna within their next iPhone that's optimized for like a satellite constellation? Do they not have the capability? Um, we, we actually want to encourage the handset manufacturers to improve their system to work with us. Why would they want to build a satellite constellation, right? And compete with mobile network operators. They want to partner with mobile network operators. They don't want to compete with them. So we're, I'm not, I'm not really worried about the Apples and Samsungs and, and, uh, Googles and, of, of, uh, well, Google actually competes with some of their customers, right? So, but uh, I'm not really worried about them. We, we, in fact, the right strategy for them, if they want to get in this business, would be to to do something with Link, right? Because we're we're years ahead of everybody else. Mm-hmm. 
Well, yeah, I think Apple's got enough antitrust stuff going on. They probably don't want to hop into another new market like that. Their valuation just passed two trillion, right? Two two trillion, right? Crazy number. That didn't take too long. It was only a few years ago that there was no trillion dollar company. Yeah, it's been amazing. I've I've been really surprised by how Tim Cook has led that company and seeing the their virtual conference, the virtual developer conference this year was really like the production value on that was so high. Right. And, you know, just seems like a lot of the stuff they're doing, they're doing very well. How does Link link into the, you know, normal terrestrial cell network? So like, obviously there's a lot of protocols and stuff. Right. Let's say I'm calling from Link in the middle of the desert. How do I connect to someone that has Verizon service? So first of all, this is the way we, we, we solve it. And you can go read our patent if you want to read a 48-page patent on it. But uh, the way we solve it is following. Your, your phone can talk to many different cell towers all at the same time. It can listen to them. And it's got on the SIM card, um, your mobile network operator tells the phone which, which cell towers it, talk to, it will talk to first and which order, a priority. Now, when we put the link network up, from the phone's perspective, it just looks like an, a bunch of, uh, of additional cell towers. They can hear them too. And your SIM card from EMO says ignore those linked cell towers. And so it can always hear them. It it looks like a vanilla cell tower to the phone. That's our trick. We trick we trick the phone into accepting not anything unique, but this looks like a regular cell tower to them. And then the the uh, you're always, even in the middle of the city, you'll hear the link cell towers. It just ignores the link cell towers. And then when you get it, and, the, and what the uh, SIM card tells it is like, talk to those link cell towers last. If, if, you, if you are in connection with any other ground cell towers, talk to them first. And only when you're in a, some, a place where there is no other cell towers, ground cell towers, okay, now you can talk to the link cell towers. So it naturally fills in the black spots just by the way the phone is designed. So we've made it backward compatible with the way that existing mobile phones are designed all over the planet. So we're instantly backward compatible with 5 billion phones. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, I, that's what kept drawing me back to is I was thinking about the two different impacts you have, being able to broaden the network for the 5 billion existing people and then also to basically change the way that you know this other two billion people are able to communicate funding wise so you said you have done series a up to this point yeah we've raised uh seed in series a and uh we have a deep amount of interest among our existing investors although we don't need to raise any more money right now we have funding until you know end of 2021 well into 2021 and uh we have investors coming at us wanting to invest some more money so we may take some more money now but uh, we, we have a couple, you know, things we would like to do. Um, and then the, there's, there's huge capital out in the world. There's trillions of dollars of capital looking for good investments. And in the, in the very near future, we'll tap into that, right? We just want to do it the right time. It's just a matter of timing. So we're, we're uh, you know, we're doing very well on the, on the funding side. Awesome. What are your facilities like right now? So I assume you have some sort of, clean room area where you're actually building the satellites or are you i guess i should ask are you outsourcing the development in terms of actual manufacturing or are you guys doing that yourselves no we're bringing the manufacturing of the satellites in-house so we first started with with uh so we have a facilities in falls church um and uh 
we're actually uh, doubling our uh, room here in the next month or so, um, growing. Um, we just we we're constantly outgrowing our our space, so we're about to double our room here in about another month. Um, and uh, manufacturing in house, and and uh, we have uh, we decided that we had to bring our secret sauce, the payload. How do you connect to the to phones from the satellite in space in house? And then what we did uh, that was the first three link one, two, and three. And link four, we built a satellite bus around our payload. So Link 4 is in orbit. We've been, you know, going through all the motions of, you know, uh, qualifying and validating the technology. Things are going great. And we're working on Link 5, 6, 7, 8, you know, and on uh, as, as we speak. Uh, Link 5 is about ready to, um, you know, ready to be uh, almost complete, ready to launch. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's all in-house. So we decided when we go to the full up system, we're going to have to build thousands of, of these satellites in a mass production facility and be able to get the costs out. So the key thing here that we've been, um, we went out and talked to 10 different small sat uh, bus providers and they were all too expensive. They, they all have a business model, build one, two, three dozen satellites a year and make all their money off that. And because they only have small production quantities, they build in a lot of costs into their business model, and they don't know how to build a thousand a year or two thousand a year. So it was very clear to us in thinking about our, our roadmap that if we're gonna, I'm gonna go raise a whole bunch of money to build a, a couple thousand satellites a year. I'm not gonna turn around and give it to somebody else to train them and teach them how to mass produce satellites. Um, I might as well do it myself. Right. I might as well bring that, that all in house rather than giving it to somebody else, all that money to somebody else and have them become the world expert in mass producing satellites. So we're we're bringing we're going to bring that in house. Now, we will selectively in a case by case basis, go out and buy technologies that that uh, um, do a make versus buy. And we might, you know, uh, you know, so we're always um, talking to suppliers about uh, doing some work for us and different and different things. Yeah, I think the the make versus buy decisions are very interesting when you're talking about space components. It's always interesting to weigh the options of. I think it's getting better, right? That there's more space hardware that's becoming somewhat cheaper, so that you can start to buy more stuff. But it's yeah. it's cool to see that you're willing to make the investment to make your own buses and kind of eventually take advantage of economies of scale to get the cost down. Yeah, one of our so one of our interns this summer built us a uh, momentum wheel. That's probably going to fly in space, right? So we instead of going out and buying a momentum wheel um, um, from uh, uh, from some other provider, which are very expensive, right? We found a very bright intern um, from from my alma mater, Caltech, and uh, over the course of summer, he built us a momentum wheel, and and we're t we're testing it out now in the lab, right? So we may we might fly that sucker in space. He, that's a co pretty cool internship, isn't it? Yeah, that's very impressive. That would definitely be a cool deliverable for the end of the summer is to have a momentum that goes to space. Are you hoping to keep, when you're talking about eventually you're going to want to have obviously thousands of satellites to have global coverage, do you think those will still be in the, the realm of 25 kilograms or at least on that magnitude? Well, over time, they'll grow in size. Uh, we'll get bigger antennas. Um, uh, but what, it'll be a natural evolution, right? Incrementally building more and more capable, powerful satellites uh, based on, uh, you know, 
what just uh, a natural incremental progression of, of slightly larger every year, right? We can do that, right? You start small, you learn there. It's like what Elon did, right? He he didn't start with the Falcon 9 or Starship. He started with the Falcon 1. And they built and launched the Falcon 1 and learned how to do it. And then they built larger launch vehicles and then larger launch vehicles, right? So we'll do the same thing with satellites. You mentioned that you basically want to have it set up so that AT&T, Verizon are signing agreements with you so that when a phone goes into roaming, it switches onto your network. I guess I have a couple questions about that. The first is like, how do you convince them? And the second is, what is the timeline for that? Like, what, how many satellites do you need to have up before it's actually useful for them to sign those agreements? So first of all, they you convince them because they have they're going to make a lot of money, right? Fair enough. Um, <laughs> so you do a revenue share with them, right? So that's how you convince them. It's all about you know profit, right? So. Um, and they're worried. They're worried you're going to cut a deal with their competitor, and their competitor is going to make all the money and maybe steal subscribers from them, right? So, it's a uh, it's rather straightforward. Like uh, you know, show 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 me the money, right? Show me show me Verizon, AT and T, T Mobile, how you make money. Um, what was the second question, Owen? Just the timeline of when you think you'll have a big enough constellation that you'll actually be able to provide this sort of roaming service. So we we actually think so. As opposed to what you maybe the model you have in your mind, which is SpaceX yeah. and OneWeb and Amazon, they all these big Leo constellations, and they're much different than us. And we're and maybe we should talk about why we're not competing with them, why we're just complementary to them. Um, they they really need to have the full constellation up before you're going to be willing to buy from them. And the reason is, is they can get continuous real-time broadband coverage to their home from Viasat and from Intelsat Epic and from six or eight other satellite companies in existence now. So if you're going to really give them a worse service, no one's going to sign up. So you have to be better than Viasat, right? Now, the only thing that these companies have that's really better than Viasat right now or all these other half a dozen other companies is lower latency. And so um, they may be more expensive. Their biggest challenge, the, 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 the dirty little secret that everybody in the satellite industry knows, but most people in the uh, broader industry don't know, is that they, they, uh, the user terminals for uh, Leo, big Leo constellations are, are, are thousands of dollars right now. And they need to have a breakthrough. They need to get the cost of the user terminal down to a few hundred dollars, right? Because that's what Viasat costs. The entire user terminal about as, of a Viasat user terminal is three or $400. And a couple hundred dollars of that is electronics. The dish on the Viasat parabolic dish is cost you 10 or 20 bucks. It's a piece of parabolic metal dish, right? It's cheap. And so the, the real problem for these these big leos is that their antennas like a phased array antenna has a lot of electronic components it's really expensive it's a lot more expensive than the 10 or 20 dollar dish from Viasat. so that's their challenge um, and so they can't they have to have they have to have a complete solution now for us if you're in a rural or remote area and you have 0g you have no coverage none of the time if we give you a periodic system where satellite passes over every hour or maybe every 15 minutes and you get some coverage some of the time, that's infinitely better than zero G, right? You get some coverage, right? It could save your life. It could transform your economics. So our, we, so with a, with 
with a few dozen to maybe 100 satellites, microsats, we can get into business. So our economics of the starting out, we don't need to raise billions of dollars and take years to get into business. So we actually anticipate getting into business in the very near future um, based on much smaller numbers of satellites with a, a, a periodic service for, for uh, messaging um, from your phone in remote areas. Yeah, I totally didn't think about that. But I guess if you're just sending an SMS if you just have to queue it and it sends in 15 minutes, as, as long as yeah. you're using it for, you know, yeah. basic communications, that makes a lot of sense. You got it. You queue it, it waits for the satellite to pass over, the two minute overpass, it puts the message up to the satellite and it sends it on. You can, uh, if you're, you know, and you can get messages downloaded to you is the same way. Yeah. Right. That's very interesting. Cause that is a, a huge, I knew about the, obviously the user terminal issue, which is that most people in the U S already have a phone. Um, and if you, you know, it's $2, like you said, but I didn't think about the fact that you don't need a full constant constellation to start doing business. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. And so the other thing here is if for you to sign up, because you already have the phone, so your cost of signing up is virtually zero. In fact, we may, you know, it's like it, you're, the cost of a message, you might, you know, send you 25 or 50 cents, right? People will pay 25 or 50 cents for a text message. Um Right. If that's the only way to do it, that's that's what SMS used to be. It used to be a two hundred billion dollar year business that Verizon and and, and uh, AT and T and T Mobile would charge charge you for messaging before things like WhatsApp and iMessage uh, gave it away. Forced them. It forced them to give it away for free. People would pay for messaging. Okay. I want to hop into student advice. Is there anything else we you want to talk about with Link first? I just want to conclude with Link, and I like this, is that Link is transformational in connecting everywhere and everyone on the planet, right, all the time. And and there is huge, you know, human safety implications to what we're doing. And, uh, you know, for example, um, you know, that there was a tsunami in 2003 that... Uh, uh, it was like a 9.1 or 9.2 earthquake in the some in the Indian, Indian Ocean. It killed over 200,000 people because nobody could get the warning. In the future, with Link, when we detect that uh, earthquake and we know there's a tsunami coming, we can instantly broadcast everywhere in that area directly to people's phones in rem even remote areas where they have no connectivity. You know, grab your loved ones and get to high ground now. Run for your lives. Now, how many lives will that save? Another thing that uh, we've been thinking about is uh, in, in this in the world with uh, there is a, a structural bias in the world that creates um, a, a big problem in many other ways. And that's that there's about uh, the statistics show that about 300 million fewer women have smartphones than men. Well, there's more women in the world than men. So why is that? Um, and part of it is is uh, institutional sexism in certain countries. But the, another part of them is just structural. That if you live on a farm and you have kids growing up, you know, it's just the natural. It's not sexist um, in, in many people's minds. It's just a safety issue. You send the uh, the boy to the city to go get a job, right? And and because uh, they're going to be you think they're going to be safer um, and you keep the the girls on the on the farm to work on the farm. Right. And 
And uh, so what happens is the, as the young man goes to the city, he has to get a phone. And the young woman stays in the farm. They don't need a phone. And so the, the young man becomes knowledgeable about mobile technology and this revolution and gets a distinct advantage over the, the young women. And so we think that uh, having everywhere coverage, well, now all the women are going to get phones, too, and they're going to be empowered. And they're going to get accelerate their education and knowledge of the world. So we think it'll have a, a very powerful effect on empowering women across the globe for by providing universal coverage. Um, same thing with uh, Ebola crisis. Let me talk about the public healthy safe crisis, COVID in, in emerging countries. Well, how are you going to get the data in and even know what's going on with COVID and be able to deal with it if you don't communicate with all these supply chains in the public health system depend on communications. Supply chains break down. So we think just like we were, we were invented out of an insight to the Ebola crisis, that what Link is doing could have a very big effect in helping deal with COVID around the world. Yeah, that's a really good point. Natural disaster is a really good point. There's also a history of like dictators shutting off internet during coups and like revolutions right. and stuff yeah. so being able to provide reliable service where they can't just cut the cell towers off is another good use case yeah i think it could definitely change the way that the world works i think the effects for the u.s is more of like a luxury but then yeah in like third world countries it would be you know very much a game changer to have this sort of communication capability yep all right, let's talk a little bit about student advice. So you're someone that's been the leader of a number of different organizations from when you were you know, just out of college up until now. What advice do you have for students that want to be entrepreneurial? And let's say they're in college and they have ideas or they want to you know, start something like uh, a, a lobbying for you know, changes in the space industry. What advice do you have for students that have that entrepreneurial spirit? Well, I just suggest you get involved and do something, right? Um, you know, it's like uh, the world is made by people who, you know, pull, pull, do, pull their own bootstraps up and go do something, right? And you learn by doing. I learned space policy by getting in, in space activism. I didn't wait for somebody to, to, like, invite me and go do it. I just, like, I'm going to go do this. This is the rest of my life is going to be dedicated to space. I'm going to go make this happen, right? And so I didn't ask for permission. Right now, I was. I, you want to be polite and respectful, but you want to go. You know, make something happen. If you have an idea, um, maybe it's not perfectly thought out, but you'll learn ab about uh, so much more by trying and and failing. You know, my first doing startup, my first real st entrepreneurial startups were chapters of the L five Society. Starting a chapter of SEDS is an entrepreneurial endeavor, right? Leading people, trying to motivate them to do things getting them involved in a project, uh, building something, you know, building a project and like producing something, right? You know, why are you, you know, figuring out why you're doing this and motivating people? That's, that's great learning, right? So getting, if you want to do space policy, um, get involved, I suggest getting involved with the March storm, right? Um, so the Alliance for Space Development, which is the Space Frontier Foundation and and the National Space Society organized an annual, you know, you know, citizens lobbying effort on the Hill. I, I suggest you start there. When I was in college, I got an internship on Capitol Hill with a congressman. Um, that's a great experience. That changed everything. I just spent 10 weeks on Capitol Hill and uh, I learned a ton 
Well, just an internship. So I love internships. It should be something you love. You just have a deep passion for that you, you'll just naturally gravitate that way. Um, I could not, I was a complete, so I'm a Caltech dropout, right? I could not motivate myself to complete the coursework at Caltech just because I couldn't imagine myself doing that for the rest of my life. I just could not make myself do it. Well, I had a huge passion for business and space policy. Now I'm good at math and science, but I didn't have the same passion of doing it, right? So I, um, if I could have listened to myself and told myself, I would have done, you know, probably would have done something completely different. But everything I've done about jumping in and doing something is is how I've learned all the best lessons in life. So I'd, I'd uh, urge students to find something that speaks to you um, and do it. And there's lots of things you can do in space, right? Like you could start a, a, a podcast show for SEDS, right? So, right? So that's pretty cool. That's a good example. I think what you were talking about learning by doing is, is pretty important. Uh, the last one we always ask, and this will kind of be a similar question in many ways, but it's just general advice to SEDS students. So we're all students. We're interested in space. We might be engineers. We might be non-technical. What advice do you have for us as we come into the industry in the next couple of years? Well, I advise you to get your hands dirty. If you want to come and work for a space company, I look for somebody who's done something, right? With what they could do, with what they had a means. Did you, are you out working in, if you're an engineer, um, it's just not theoretical taking classes. Have you worked on and built something, right? So that's that's important. Um, and, and can you build something? If we throw something at you, can you just go build this, right? Um, that would be critical. If you're not an engineer, there's other types of skills that are very important. Do you have policy experience? Can you write? It's amazing how many people um, can't really write well, right? Um, can you persuade? Um, can you, you know, are you, a, are you a natural leader and get people together and, and make things happen and deliver results without having somebody to manage you, right? So there's, um, there's lots of things that uh, you could jump in and, what I've found is if you have a passion for it, you'll become good at it, right? Because you have a passion for it over time. And so that's my general advice is, is uh, uh, for people is find, find where you're passionate for. And, and uh, there is some, uh, you will become an expert in it over time, right? By doing, and it takes intensive commitment. But if you have, don't have the passion for it, you, will have, you won't have the commitment to become an expert in it. Right, take it to the next level. Right, so that's that. I would. That's what I advise you to um, your listeners to do. Perfect. Yeah, I think that's a really solid set of advice. I think you're not the first person to stress to stress that, but I think that's you put it very well. Anything else you want to talk about before we hop off? No, thank you, Owen. I uh, hope uh, you know. So Link does a bunch of uh, internships. Uh, if uh, if there's uh, SEDS members that are looking for internships, make sure to send us a note to contact us over our website. We have a bunch of open positions at link.world. And uh, be contact us about future internships as well as if you're graduating, um, open jobs. We, we, uh, we're, we're hiring. Awesome. Well, thank you, Charles, for coming on the show. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Hope you guys enjoyed the episode and we will see you next time.